0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So we continue on in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, and this is sort of how I want to start. I want to remind us of the backstory. I want to remind us of the context um, for this uh, uh, four-chapter letter. I know this is going to be a review of things for a lot of you, stuff you may have already heard in this series, but... um, uh, there's always uh, new folks in our midst every week, and there are some who have not caught all of this information, and it's particularly important uh, this week. So, so, so listen again. Around 60 AD, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this letter while he's under house arrest in Rome. And at any moment, uh, Paul's capital trial can, be, can appear on the docket of, of Caesar, and literally within hours, uh, Paul could be dead. Paul writes to a church in Macedonia that's very near and dear uh, to his heart. Uh, Actually, Paul planted the church uh, in Philippi about a decade before. And so the Philippians had supported Paul faithfully for a decade with friendship, with prayer, uh, with money, with encouragement. They were constantly interacting with him in his travels and in his mission. And Paul says in the book to the the folks at Corinth, he said that out of extreme poverty, uh, these folks gave very generously. Like Paul, the folks in Philippi are enduring uh, Roman pagan uh, persecution. They're enduring beatings and false imprisonments and extortion, uh, being socially ostracized, uh, etc., etc. And and this body in Philippi, again, commentators and and, and theologians will tell you that this is most likely the most mature church to whom Paul writes uh, in his prolific uh, ministry. From what we can tell, for example, uh, in Philippi, there is no known heresy being taught by the church's uh, teachers like, say, in Galatia. Uh, In Philippi, um, there was, for example, like no blatant immorality being enjoyed by the people and applauded by the leaders. In Corinth, for example, there was uh, rampant sexual sin, and that's alive and well in every church, you can trust me. Uh, But the problem in Corinth is that it was being bragged about and and it was actually being boasted in. And that's not happening in Philippi. Philippi. This is a relatively uh, mature church, but they have one major struggle. We've already uh, come into this reality uh, in chapter 1. We'll talk about it again in chapter 4. But but apparently uh, this church struggles with or is severely tempted with Uh, discontentment and disunity they're struggling with discontentment and disunity it's almost as if now paul's not saying this but it's almost as if he's saying in the text he's like if you could figure this out this grumbling and disputing verse 14 he's saying you'd be blameless and innocent and without blemish verse 15 as an interesting sidebar so just give me this next three minutes of your time i'm not sure how much it relates to the actual passage but, but an interesting sidebar and some conjecture on my part, I was reading with you all CBR on Friday morning. City Bible Reading is this initiative where we try and read through the same chapters in the morning in our private worship, and we read and we interact and we pray, kind of looking forward to being in community in and around those same passages. And and this Friday morning, we were in Acts chapter 16. And if you're paying attention, you know that Acts 16 uh, is the story of the core group uh, being converted and gathered for this church plant uh, in Philippi. And I was thinking about the first three converts, and I was thinking about their families, and and I began to see why uh, unity, and I began to see why contentment uh, might be issues uh, in this body. Think about the three charter members. All right, think about this with me. I call this Philippi Prez. maybe not Presbyterian, who knows? Lydia was an older, successful businesswoman from, from Thyatira, which means she wasn't a Roman citizen. She was rich and successful, and she was pushy. Uh, Luke says that she prevailed upon them to stay at her house, chapter 16, verse 15. So Paul is an apostle. Timothy and Silas are two apostolic assistants. Uh, Luke is the gospel writer, and they were all overpowered by Lydia. Prevailed is a really nice translation for a Greek word that means to compel someone contrary to their will. She won. Secondly, there was a young servant girl with a story of being victimized by humans and demonized by Satan. Third, there's a Roman torturer, a Roman jailer uh, who was trained in how to get his way, and he knew how to get his way uh, primarily by force. A powerful older woman with no Roman citizenship, a young servant girl with no status at all, and a Roman leader who was converted out of being a torturer if he's still alive. So can you see how they might be struggling with a little bit of unity and contentment uh, in the body? I don't think you could get more diverse than the first three people of a church plan. You say, but that was ten years before certainly 10 years later. That doesn't describe the body still. Uh, I would say think about this. New City, this little four- to five-year-old church is comprised of, just look around, lots of single folks, some of whom are getting married, lots of young marrieds without kids, uh, lots of married couples. If they have a kid, they have eight of them. And uh, Lots of men and women a couple of decades older than me that are kind of willing to put up with my folly so they can watch the chaos that is in front of them. All four categories of people were represented in the first eight people that started this church. So sociologists will tell you, those who study church planting, they'll tell you that that in the seed of a church, the church plant, is the DNA that will blossom in the organism known as as the church. And I think it's just fair to presume from Acts 16 that this church struggled with discontentment and disunity because they were continually persecuted and they couldn't be more diverse. And Paul clearly commands no grumbling, no disputing in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So in the passage, he's going to give three arguments against grumbling and disputing. Grumbling and disputing, displace joy. Grumbling and disputing, derail the mission. Grumbling and disputing, discard the gospel. So displace joy, derail the mission, and discard the gospel. So first, uh, get, get your passages out. Uh, worship folder, insert your own scriptures, whatever you have, maybe on your uh, phone or mobile device. We'll start in verse 14. Let's unpack these words, grumbling and disputing. I want to make sure we understand exactly what Paul is commanding. Verse 14, do all things. He couldn't be more vague, more general, more more overarching, more all-inclusive. In every situation, every context, every illness, every relationship, every financial market, every political leader, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling is this word, and I don't do this too often, but I'm going to do it today. It's a Greek word, gonggousmos. Try and say that fast. Gonggousmos, all right? And it's a word that describes the entire process of internal discontent becoming a fight. And so this word, if you look it up in the Greek lexicon, you're going to see that it can be rendered in the English in a variety of ways along this continuum, and it just depends on the context, depends on how you give it. So when there is no context to describe it, you know that Paul has in mind all of it. Okay, so listen, it can be translated this way, internal discontent. We've all done that. It can be translated this way, murmuring, which means grumbling, growling an audible yet inarticulate noise. Now, uh, there are many joys to parenting. We all know this, but parenting, if you don't have children yet, is quite scary. Uh, For me, the scariest part is that your kids imitate you, okay? So God puts your DNA into them, and then he gives them them the capacity to imitate and mirror uh, everything they see in your life, and this is scary, okay? So my two-year-old, Liam, he will growl or murmur at the iPad when he thinks an injustice has happened in his game with Angry Birds. He, he will literally growl at the perceived injustice, which, I mean, we all know he got it from Trisha, right? <laughs> my father before me, my son and his father, we growl when things don't go our way. And we actually think it's holiness because we're not yelling, When we're irritated, when we're annoyed, there's an audible, inarticulate noise coming out of our mouth. Gongusmas can be translated muttering. This is when everything is audible and a few words are discernible. This is where you hear something and every now and then you, oh, that was a word. Oh, that was a word. It's called muttering. So so Tricia has noticed that I mutter when I mow uh, the yard. and Something about the repetition and the noise, so, something about that, I can have like a half-hour uh, conversation with my not-present friend or my not-present uh, present frenemy, and, and I will mutter and grumble and fight and disapprove and shame and defeat them, or at least defeat the imaginary them. That's called muttering. Gongousmos uh, is a Greek onomatopoeia, like oink or meow or bam, the word imitates the sound it describes. Gong, goose, moss. Complaining. There's a clear vocalization and articulation of our discontent to a neutral or friendly ear. Gong, goose, moss, finally can be rendered quarreling. Again, you remember, it's a continuum from inside of us to outside of us, uh, taking up your frustration and your irritation and your angst with the person who has slighted you, not because you hope to be reconciled, but because you want to hurt them. And pay them back and get revenge. Do all things without gangusmas or disputing. Again, another word that can range from internal to external. If you get 10 translations in the English, you're going to get 10 different words here. Uh, the, 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 the actual word is the Greek word from which we get dialogue. This word can mean extensive internal reasoning or thinking. It can mean uh, a thinking that becomes a stated opinion. It can be a stated opinion that is fought about in a debate. And and of course, it can be positive. If two candidates are debating a a topic for the good of society, or if two elders are discussing a a particular problem and a solution, it, it can be a positive thing. Dialogue is not bad. But in this context, Paul is saying this don't chew on your circumstances. Don't incessantly and obsessively go over in your brain the difficulty, the illness, the offense, the slight, the trial, the circumstance. Don't infect the community with your grumpiness and your murmuring and your bitterness and your discontentment. And I just want you guys to know we're really good at this. And I didn't didn't mean that in a good way. I didn't mean that to encourage us. Some of us like to grumble about not being married and some of us about the marriage we have. Some of us, we like to murmur about not having work, and some of us about the work we have. Some of us like to to mutter about not having kids, and some of us like to mutter about the kids we have. Some of us like to complain about not having community, and some of us want to complain about the community that we've been given. Our text is as general and vague and overarching as possible. It's like a great uh, Caribbean vacation. It is all-inclusive do all things without grumbling and disputing. But then Paul has the audacity to go further and get specific. Go down to the end of our passage. He goes further. Not just don't grumble and fight, but also rejoice, be glad, infect one another with joy verses 17 and 18. And then Paul gets specific. We're we're tempted to think there's some limit to this don't grumble command. Uh, There's gotta be some limit to this whole rejoice at all times command. And Paul essentially says in verse 17, even if you're dying in the moment, even if you're in the moment of dying for the kingdom, if you're in the actual moment of martyrdom, don't grumble, be glad. I don't know of a greater injustice in the world than a martyr, Someone who travels and tries to give life to people and they kill them. And Paul's like, even if that's your future, no grumbling, no muttering, no murmuring, no complaining, only joy. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. In the Old Testament, a drink offering was a small sacrifice of oil or wine that, that accompanied a larger uh, primary sacrifice. The, the primary sacrifice would be an animal or grain, and the drink offering made the large offering complete. And Paul is saying this, even if the picture of our future is you all on fire like an animal... And me being poured out like wine onto the ground. Two very distinct possibilities. Even if that's our future, I will rejoice. And I will try to infect you with my joy. And Paul commands verse 18, rejoice. It's just a simple command. You should be glad and do all you can to infect me with your joy. Not just don't be grumpy, but rejoice with unemployment and underemployment. Not just don't be grumpy, but rejoice with infertility and singleness and illness and tragedy. Replace grumpiness with joyfulness, even if actually dying while trying to serve another. And Paul says. Ganguzmos is cancer within that either seeps out when we try and hold it in or gets vomited out into the community. And he says joy likewise is a contagious and infective and redemptive and transforming heart reality. So grumbling and disputing displaces joy. You can say it either way, okay? You can say that we're to displace grumbling and disputing with contagious joy. That's like the the forward logic of Paul in the passage. Or you can say that when we grumble and dispute, our contagious joy has been replaced. But either way, second second point, this is why it matters. Listen to this. When grumbling and disputing displace contagious joy, the mission is derailed. Point two, grumbling and disputing derail mission. So look at verse 15. In 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Verse 15, so that. It's a purpose clause. In order that. Two things he wants to see happen in their joy. You may be blameless, which was without defect, and innocent, which is pure and unalloyed, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul is calling the Philippians and us to a beautiful, pure, straightforward, joyful life in the midst of a crooked, it's it's the Greek word from which we get scoliosis, bent spine, in the midst of a crooked and twisted and distorted generation. He's saying live a pure and joyful life among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul, Paul is not saying, I want you to live as light so that you can expose and sort of condemningly expose the sin in others. He's not saying, I want you to shine as light so that you can uh, display that you're distinct and different and, and that there's an us and a them mentality. He's saying, I want you to live as bright lights that draw others into the light and into the freedom of Jesus. The, the metaphor of God's people as a light Um, And a light that converts is an Old Testament and a New Testament metaphor. It's on multiple pages in your Bible. I'll just give you two. The Old Testament prophet Daniel, he wrote this, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and will turn many to righteousness. Jesus in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? And so by using this rich biblical metaphor, Paul is saying that our lives should be so beautiful and so joyful, uh, joyful and so peaceful, and so inviting that our lost friends run from the crooked and ugly and distorted and haunting world in which they live. And they run to our community. And they enter into our community because of the protection and the warmth and the truth and the beauty and the joy of our lives. So do you remember uh, the movie, the Pixar movie, 1998, Bugs Life? The scene is a rundown trailer in the middle of nowhere with one of those blue light bug zappers hanging on the porch. And one fly says to another very urgently, No, Harry! No, don't look at the light. And you zzz, you hear Harry buzzing. And he says in response, he's drawn towards the light. He cannot resist. It's a magnet to him. He says, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. And then zzz, electrocution and screaming, okay? That's where the illustration breaks down. But up until that whole electrocution part, I want you to think about that, Okay our neighbors and our coworkers and our relatives and our friends to be saying, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. While being drawn into the force field of something that according to Daniel and Jesus and Paul is light in a dark and scary world. So grumbling and disputing, they derail the mission, but joy and unity, they advance the mission. So I just want to hit the pause button for a second, okay? This is not like my introductory pause I had nothing to do with the passage. This is a pause that has everything to do with the passage, but I think we're going to skip right over it, okay? My guess is that most of us have started to beat ourselves up for not living a joyful, crisp, straightforward, distinct, hopeful, beautiful life. But before we do that, I actually want to see us beat ourselves up for something else, Don't miss the significant point of the text. Where does the text assume we live life? In the midst of. In the middle of. At the very center of lost people. The text assumes that the lost, the unbelievers, the pagans, that they're the ones among whom we shine as stars In the sky, even if we love and serve each other in perfect unity, even if we eradicate from our hearts murmuring and muttering and low grade discontent, even if we live a beautiful life in the midst of extreme hardship, Paul says, What does it matter if there are no unbelievers there to see it, to be attracted to Jesus? Rhetorical questions Do we live in isolation? Do do we huddle together in Christian enclaves thinking that we're protecting ourselves from the crooked and perverse? Do we live afraid of the world and at the same time arrogantly believe that we're better than the world? That is a paralyzing situation, to be both arrogant and afraid at the same time. Paul, Paul assumes that we're rubbing shoulders with the world. He he assumes that our neighbors are close enough to smell the pleasing aroma of our lives. He assumes that our shining lights penetrate the dark existence of actual lost people. Listen, God has lots of strategies for converting his children to himself. In fact, in in Philippi, I think there are three of them. But this is one of his favorites. To have his followers live in the world, but not of the world. To have his followers experience the crushing circumstances that are normal to all humanity. Have his followers rejoice in the face of loss and grieve as those with hope in the face of death, and then be ready to answer their neighbor's question regarding their hope. Peter said it like this 1 Peter 3 Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Grumbling and disputing derail the mission of seeing lost people converted to life. When we grumble, when when we uh, fight, the world says, My life stinks. But their life stinks too. The world says, yeah, my life's dark and it's dangerous and it's full of betrayal and it's exhausting trying to decide who's going to stab me in the back next or which shoe is going to drop next. But I, I see no real difference in the life of my Christian neighbor or coworker or relative or friend. But not only does the Bible teach this idea, like in 1 Peter 3 and in Matthew 5 and in Daniel 12, not only does it teach the idea that our lives, um, that, that when we face hardship with joy, that when we look at death in the face and grieve with hope, that when we love one another well and forgive one another, uh, not only does the Bible teach us that in that circumstance, the lost will come to life. The Bible actually tells the story of such over and over. Think about the three converts that launched uh, Philippi Prez in Acts 16. Paul and Silas are in prison, deep in a dark dungeon. They're there because Paul had the audacity to exorcise a demon from a young girl. She was being victimized and she was being used by her master. She she was a money-making venture. And so the citizens of Philippi brought false charges against them, a significant injustice. They were beaten with rods, the text says, inflicted with many blows. Horrible pain, bloody mess, flesh Everywhere. They're in the inner prison with their feet in stocks, unable to sleep because of the pain and the discomfort. I'll pick up in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That's contagious rejoicing, even when being poured out like a drink offering. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So the jailer would have paid with his life for uh, the lost prisoners. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for light. I find that incredibly ironic. I think there's any chance Paul's like, Hopefully, the Philippian jailer would raise his hand and go, this is true. What he's saying, this part, this is true. This will convert a person. The jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Remember, we talked about trembling and fear two weeks ago, and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved. If our neighbor sees us grumbling and murmuring and muttering and says, friend, what's wrong? What's wrong? I mean, it could take days for us to delineate the injustice and the pain and the slights and the frustrations. But if our neighbor sees us rejoicing and living in unity and even singing in the face of death, it just takes one word to answer that question. Jesus. In uh, mid-October of the year 2000, uh, John Holland was flying Duke University uh, Life Flight helicopter And at the time, he's the only passenger on board. He was 39. He was the father of three young children. He was the husband of a beautiful uh, woman named Pam. He was flying over the Grand Oaks neighborhood when his helicopter began to struggle, and it became apparent that he would would have to bring the chopper down uh, immediately. Uh, He attended the Naval Academy, he piloted for the Marines for years in combat, and he had been trained in how to crash land a a helicopter in such a way as to provide himself uh, with the best chance for survival. His best option uh, would have been to come in shallow and to hit a house of some kind in in order to cushion his fall. There were several eyewitnesses on this evening, and uh, they told investigators and the media that it was obvious that Holland crashed the helicopter into a spare lot with no buildings. One witness said this, he brought it in steep, and he set it in that lot, referring to the only empty lot in the entire subdivision. John Holland died instantly from the impact of his instant and sacrificial decision, And the family who owned the lot uh, that called it their backyard were gathered in their living room. They were watching TV, and and literally the the windows in their house um, um, were shattered at at the impact. And Brian Romig, the the man who owned the lot, told the newspaper that he and his family owed their very lives to John Holland. A few days later, the Romigs, uh, they visit Pam Holland. They don't know what to say. They just feel compelled to go and to talk to her they wanted to pay their respects they want to say thank you they want to honor the sacrifice and courage of the dad and at some point the dad says i have no idea why he chose to die instead of land on our house but we're so thankful and pam holland responded quickly and confidently she goes i know why and the answer was much longer than this but it can be summarized in one word jesus On the spot, Brian Romig was converted to the gospel. A few days later, hundreds of Durham residents, hundreds, they didn't know the Holland family. They were so moved by the heroism of John Holland, they attend the funeral at the Church of Good Shepherd, a Presbyterian church in Durham. And by their own witness, when they heard of the faith and compassion and love for Jesus that was in John Holland's heart, and when they witnessed Pam Holland grieving as one with hope, Weeping over the loss, yet singing praises to her Savior. Dozens were converted on the spot, simply there to pay their respects, changed by the beauty of a gospel-centered life. Listen, we're all going to die, but to find someone who dies so that others can live, that's arresting. Every one of us is going to lose loved ones, but to, to, to witness someone grieving in a way as one who has eternal hope, that is captivating and that is converting. And Paul says, grumbling and disputing derails the mission of Jesus Christ. Finally, grumbling and disputing discards the gospel. Now I'm with you. There's no doubt about it. I look at this passage and I say, how in the world can I rejoice and be glad in the midst of hard circumstances, in the midst of the death of a loved one and and facing imminent death myself? How can I respond without grumbling and without fighting? And and I may acknowledge and admit, and I do readily admit that I will grumble and fight over small matters and I should stop that. I should not do that anymore. But, But this all things, Without grumbling and disputing, this is over the top. How can I possibly do that? Paul gives us the answer to how uh, in the text 14 and 15. Do everything with joy so that you're a powerful witness. Verse 16. Here's how by holding fast to the word of life, a synonym for the gospel. The message about the life, the abundant and eternal life that we have in Jesus. The only way to rejoice is to hold fast to the word of life. In my mind's eye here, I see um, another older uh, movie. I think it's called Twister. And I'm not exactly sure, but I'm pretty sure that it's Helen Hunt. And I think Helen Hunt, in my mind's eye, is sitting there, and she's in the midst of a massive historic uh, tornado, and she is there, and there are houses flying miles down the road. There, there, it's literally raining cows, and, and she is there holding on to some pipe protruding out of the ground, must be going into a septic tank. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to. but, but she's there, and she, she's holding on, and she is holding fast to the, the pipe, and, and if she lets go, she's done. And Paul's saying... By holding fast to the word of life, by clinging to the gospel, we can do all things without grumbling and disputing. There was an elder who generously, very generously, poured into me in my early years of ministry. And when I was grumpy and when I was snarling and when I was eoring around, that's a Winnie the Pooh reference, when I was harumphing, he would draw me out, ask me dozens of questions. He would try and get all the facts on the table That's why my life was so hard and why my life was not fair and why my life was not worth living. And at some point when he could not handle it anymore, he would take his thumb and his index finger, and he would put them as close together as he possibly could, and he would look right at me, and he would say, this is the cross to you right now. Itsy, bitsy, teeny, weeny, almost non existent reality. He would say, The death of God for you has become microscopic. And then his six foot, ten inch arms would go wide, and he would say, This is your circumstance. What's his point? I had to discard, get out of my hands, I had to minimize the gospel. if I I was going to pick up and chew on and meditate on what I perceived to be this great injustice in my life. I had to shrink the cross to a size smaller than my problems in order to be okay with being grumpy instead of being joyful. Now, I don't do this to you all yet, but I'm tempted. In order to grumble about being single or having a bad marriage, we have to make that reality bigger than the fact that will forever be married to Jesus. In order to mutter about being poor or having less money than we did five years ago, we have to make that reality much bigger than and discard the gospel card in order to pick up that card, which teaches us that we're eternally rich in Christ. In order to murmur and complain about not having children or ha- having difficult children, that reality must become bigger than the reality that we're the beloved children of God. We'll have to discard the gospel to pick up the card of the circumstance. Paul's saying, hold fast, clutch, don't let go of, rehearse over and over and over the gospel. Keep your mind and your heart occupied with who you are in Christ Rob yourself of the ability to rehearse your circumstance. Let's think very practically two ways in which joy will be uh, produced if we continually rehearse the gospel and two ways that grumbling will decrease if we don't rehearse the circumstance in our life. Okay, you ready? First, what is the root of all grumpiness, the root of all murmuring, the root of all complaining and discontentment? I know I'm so good at it. It's a core value. It's a belief. That I deserve better than what I'm receiving. But if I keep my eyes fixed on the gospel, what do I learn about myself? What I actually deserve is far worse than whatever is happening to me right now. When I look at Jesus on the cross, I'm like, yep, that's what I deserve. It just strips me of the ability to say, I deserve better than this. No, I don't. But secondly, feasting on the word of life, feasting on the gospel will keep us focused on the life that we have and will have forever in Jesus. So think about it. In eternity, without pain, without loss, without hardship, full flourishing in every relationship, every pain being, re, uh, being undone in the life that we've lived. God explaining uh, things to us so that we will worship him and follow him with bliss. When I set my eyes on that hope, The joy of the Lord invades my heart here and now. When I focus my eyes on, we gain everything worth having in Jesus. Not because I did anything, not because I'm going through this and God has to pay me back. I gain everything in Jesus by doing nothing. I gain everything because he did everything and he got nothing at the cross And so when I feast on that, I continually and increasingly want to give anything so that others can do nothing and gain everything. And the mission advances. If I tell myself in the midst of hard circumstances, give anything, give anything, give anything, give anything, I won't get anywhere. But if I tell myself, you have everything, you have everything, you have everything, you did nothing. I'll respond with joy, and joy in the midst of pain will bear witness to the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the fact that it is true that we deserve the cross, and you took it in our place. We thank you that it is true we deserve the damnation of the Father and his wrath, and you absorb that for us We thank you that it's true that what we're going through now pales in comparison to what you went through for us. We thank you that your life was beautiful and righteous and pure. We thank you that it was blameless and above reproach. We thank you that you have given your righteousness to us, that right now the Father does not see me as the murmurer that I am. He sees me as the content son you were. Praises to you. We thank you that you've done this for us. We thank you that you are in us. We praise you that through repentance and confession and faith and belief, you change us and you make us new and you make us different. We praise you that there is the hope of joy and contentment because your spirit is alive and well within us. In your name we pray, Jesus.